Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Volume Knob, the songs that saved your life. This week, Zach and the essence of rhythm. You know, there aren't many rules to what becomes a volume knob story. In fact, the only two I can think of are that the stories have to be personal. That is, that they're told from the guest perspective about themselves. And that music has to play a role. There used to be a third rule. It was something to the effect of songs are allowed, but albums aren't. And I mean, that makes sense when you're focusing on pop music, right? Ten songs to a record, three or four minutes a song, you got to stay focused. But that said, what about classical music? What about non-Western music? What about non-Western classical music, like Hindustani classical music and the tabla? My name is uh, Zachary Davis. I am a son, a brother, a husband, a father, and a lawyer, and a person. And the album that saved my life is Usted Zakir Hussain's The Essence of Rhythm. Zach's album-long tabla journey is full of unexpected twists and turns, including some beautiful ruminations on the power of the spoken word and oral tradition. It begins, however, somewhat surprisingly, in southern Alberta. I moved to Canada when I was five years old onto a street in suburban Calgary, and there was a boy about my age on the street. And we became best friends, and we've been best friends ever since, actually. His name is Misha. And his mother, it's important to the story, is from Pakistan. Um, I think she actually left during partition, so she's not really from Pakistan, but the family was from Karachi. And so that was sort of a flavor in his house as we were growing up. Later, when we became teenagers, obviously you start to see your parents' things in a different light. And there were a few of her things um, that we took an interest in. One of them was a little brass ball that was on her bookshelf. And that was purely decorative. She was not a smoker or even really a fan of marijuana. And that led to much hilarity later in our lives. But at this point in time, we thought we were being very sneaky. And we would take the bong into the back alley and smoke it and go for long walks. After which we would come back, and this is the other thing of hers that we took an interest in, we would come back and we would listen to records, some of her records. And it was pretty, you know, standard fare at the time, our musical tastes. We were into the classics, the Beatles, the Led Zeppelin. We had a real reggae band. We loved Lee Scratch Perry. But there was one album that she had in particular that stood out and that really captured my imagination. And it was The Essence of Rhythm, which is like you were saying. We listened to it over and over and over again, and it, frankly, it, it blew my mind. 
at the basic level, it just flabbergasted me that one person could make all those sounds. How is it even possible that one person is making all those sounds? I had no idea what a tabla looked like or how a tabla was played. I we just listened to this album over and over, and it really, really captured my imagination. And a few years later, I was in university in Calgary, and an opportunity came up to go on exchange to India. And I took the opportunity. I jumped at it. We went to Pune, which is in Maharashtra, not far from Mumbai, just inland from Mumbai. There were courses that we took on exchange, but for me, it was a stalking horse. It was a reason to get to India and to try to learn the tabla, to find a tabla teacher and to try to learn the tabla. Up until this point, I mean, even after I got there, I had done embarrassingly little research into any of this. I uh, did know what a tabla looked like at this point. That was about it. I had no idea where I was going to find a teacher. I hadn't tried to study it in Calgary, which would have made a lot of sense. There's a huge East Indian community in Calgary. Uh, I just had ambitions that I was going to learn to play like this album. Like I was going to be Zakir Hussain. And that is a preposterous notion. It, it is apparent to me now that that is a preposterous notion. It was preposterous, Zach points out, not only because the tabla is a very difficult instrument to learn, but also because Zakir Hussain was, and is, as Zach calls him, one of the world's greatest living instrumentalists. So the notion that I was going to go as a first, second year university student to Pune without knowing anything about the music, or really having listened to it beyond this and a couple other albums, and learn to play like this was, was preposterous, it turns out. I learned that later. But I got to Pune, undissuaded, and began to look for a teacher. The tabla is itself a pretty fascinating instrument. It's made up of two drums of different sizes. The smaller drum, called a deya, is used to make treble sounds, while the larger of the pair, a baya or bayan, produces bass. One day, Zach was unsuccessfully negotiating a bike rental at a bike shop in Pune. When the owner asked him what he was doing in India, he replied that he was looking for a tabla teacher. And it just so happens that sitting on the side of the road, on a stoop, was a tiny little man, probably five feet tall, very dark-skinned, hairy ears, hairy eyebrows no hair really on the top of his head. And he said that he was a tabla teacher. His name was Pandit Madhukar Shinde and he could teach me tabla. And I said, well, that's an extraordinary coincidence. That's great, I'll be your, your student. So he described to me where his house was and said, you know, come by on such and such a day and uh, we can talk about it. So on such and such a day, I tried to follow his directions and did at this point get a little bit turned around. I was quite convinced that I had found the place and I went up into an apartment tower. I was talking to a woman who said, oh yes, 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 Uh, I know the music teacher. And I sat in this apartment for maybe an hour before the music teacher came home and it was entirely the wrong person. 
the person that came home to this apartment was a musician who played Christian rock in the local church. And I uh, was disappointed not to have a new student, but did know Maduka Shinde and brought me into the man's house. And the house was beautiful. He had a little kind of corner of land, maybe about an acre inside suburban Pune, that was really a refuge from the encroachment of the city. It had a little pond, it had a big mango tree. His house, where he lived with his niece, and their studio, where he taught music. Thinking back at it, I remember before he taught me anything, he made or requested, I agreed, to go through a puja ceremony where he took me on as a student and I had to offer him certain sweets and the like. We broke a coconut. Um, at the time, I wasn't aware enough of the symbolism of all this to really describe to you now what each of those gestures meant. But to him, it meant that there was a commitment between people. And from that point on, I was a student and he began to teach me. It's here in the story where Zach really began to understand the complexity of his ambitions. Learning to play the tabla amounted to, in a sense, learning a completely new language. There's a whole system called bowl by which they identify the different noises that the tabla can make with syllables. And you memorize the syllables. You memorize the syllables that coincide to the bass tala, the bass rhythm. And then you memorize phrases that syncopate with that. And once you have memorized these phrases, you, you follow a set of rules in improvising on them. And so in that sense, it, it reminds me of Baroque music where it is, it's composed, there are, there are fugues that are played and people learn, but also there's a lot of room to make them your own, to improvise with them, to play with them. So early on, because I couldn't even really hit the drum to make a noise, I worked on that, but I began learning the talas, learning and the musical phrases that would syncopate with them. And it took the form of just sitting across from my teacher and he would you know, say out loud what otherwise would be nonsense syllables, and I would say them back to him. And they started off very basically. Tintal is like the basic 16-beat cycle that a lot of Hindustani music works within. Da din din da da din din da da din din da da din din da. And then you learn phrases that syncopate with it. And then you learn the rules. For Once you've internalized that, you learn the rules and, and you play with it. And you try not to fuck up. And if you do, you do it again. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of repetition, a lot of doing it again. This whole process was incredibly insightful for me. I learned so much about learning. I learned a little bit about Hindustani music. But those that understand the music and that listen to this 
will know that I don't know that much. But I learned a lot about learning and I learned a lot about knowledge. And more than anything, I think it taught me to appreciate the potential, potential depth and richness of an oral tradition. We have this idea, you know, I mentioned at the outset that I'm a lawyer. Uh, I also studied philosophy and those are really text heavy things. And we have this idea that that's where knowledge is as Western people, that it is to be written in texts and that sufficiently complex ways of knowing necessarily need to be born by a text. That we can't have a sufficient, like a really complex, rich tradition unless it's somehow written down. And here was a tradition that is undeniably beautiful and complex and annotated, but not written down, that lives in the minds of people. And, you know, I've carried that with me my whole, my whole life. Zach spent several months in Pune, but eventually he got restless and lonely. He left his drums in his teacher's studio and went traveling. In Jaipur, in Rajasthan, he made a series of bad decisions. It started with a rickshaw driver who I had asked to take me to a few places and he did. And then he said, you know, there's some other places. You're obviously a tourist. I'll take you to those places. Sure, I had nothing to do. And I didn't know anyone. And I eventually ended up in a room, not much larger than a closet, no windows in a building of a few stories, where there was a man lots of gaudy rings sitting at a desk who produced from the desk trays and trays and trays of semi-precious jewels and described this arrangement to me. His phone kept ringing, made him seem very important. Um, and he would say things on the phone, like the sort of deal that he was describing to me had just been concluded successfully. Um, you know, which in retrospect, was an act, um, but at the time it was sufficiently convincing. And I guess, you know, part of the decision making was, well, what the hell else am I going to do? You know, um, I was wandering around without a plan and um, this seemed exciting. I mean, I mean, that's a terribly naive feeling. It's a terrible reason to make the decision. I, I realized it was kind of a childish way to approach it, but it seemed exciting. And I had nothing else to do, so I might as well get into it. The it that Zach was getting into was supposedly a jewelry deal. The fast-talking man with the semi-precious stones was going to send a package to Calgary by mail. All Zach had to do was pick it up when he got home and hand it off. Did it seem dodgy? Dodgy-ish, but gray area dodgy. Lots of things seem dodgy. Um, and that's what made it exciting. I did not say yes for the money. I said yes for the adventure and the companionship. I felt like 
getting involved in something like this and pulling it off would be a war story I would like to tell later. So I said yes. And this turns out to be one of the worst decisions of my life. Now, I know what you're thinking, but Zach hadn't stumbled into a drug smuggling operation or even a jewel smuggling operation. Worse for him, it was a kidnapping scam and he was the captive. The story began to change almost immediately. The risk involved as they related to me became far greater. They told me the jewels had been stopped at customs. They told me that there were questions being asked about the transaction. I had no idea that this might be illegal. All of the information I had about it was coming only from these people. They started moving me around, they said, so that Customs officials from India wouldn't find me. I was being woken up in the middle of the night and moved to different safe houses. They took my passport. You know, one of the most terrible things about being kidnapped is the boredom, because the boredom really makes you prey to the gnawing anxiety of it. You sit around doing nothing and worrying. But I could actually, I could go over the bowl in my head. I didn't have my drums, but it was anchoring to me to kind of try to not lose that knowledge. And I could go and work on the phrases in my head. So that was a, that was a thing to do to anchor me, but it wasn't enough really to save me from the situation. What, you know, in, in retrospect was happening was that they were manipulating me emotionally, manipulating my confidence to create a sense of overwhelming fear that would make me want to, you know, do anything I could to be safer. And every time, every option they presented to me that would make me safer involved me paying them money somehow. Somehow it always cost me more money. So they were extorting Eventually, they had extorted all of the money that I had with me or had access to out of me. And they kept going and wanted me to call home and get more. And I was not going to call my parents. So I called a friend and I spoke to my friend in French so that we could have a more frank conversation and they couldn't understand me. And that tipped him off that there must be something wrong. And he did contact my parents in Calgary who contacted law enforcement, who contacted law enforcement in India. And eventually the people that ran one of the houses where I had been kept safe were arrested. And this came back to me where I was being kept at the other place and they almost immediately uh, got me a plane ticket to leave India within a day or two, drove me from Jaipur directly to Delhi and left me at the airport with my passport and airplane ticket at about $10. And I flew back to Canada. When he got back to Calgary, Zach was in a bad place. Really felt gutted from the whole episode. I felt more than anything else guilty. I felt ashamed of having been so naive, put myself in that situation, put everyone around me 
in such a situation of stress and anxiety. And I just felt like I wasn't the grown-up person that I believed I was. I wasn't capable of the kinds of adventures I wanted to have and that I was a fool. In time, Zach forgave himself. And though he was well and over his aspirations to become Zakir Hussein, he eventually found his way back to playing the tabla. It would have maybe been easy for me to sort of to blame this all on the, the tabla or, or lump those things in together as a part of this experience and, and give up on it. But I didn't, actually. My friend Misha uh, found another set of drums for me and I began playing again and kept playing. I left Calgary and moved to Montreal. I found a teacher in Montreal and played with him. I moved back to Calgary and began working with Misha and one winter, maybe around 2005, we had made enough money that we decided to go to India for the winter. So we went back. And among other places, we went back to Pune and I looked up Madhukarshinde. We went over there for lunch. I went over there a couple times while I was there. And he still had the drums that he had helped me buy and that I had learned to play on. He had them in his studio. With the, I had left them there with the understanding that I would come back for them. And this was years later. I mean, I was supposed to come back for them in a matter of weeks. His students were playing them because any good instrument needs to be played to sound good and to be well taken care of. But there was no question in his mind that I'd come back and I would get the drums. And he had the same commitment to me as he had to any of his students. And that, again, I think is something that I really learned about the importance of an oral knowledge. If a knowledge is oral, it means that it must be taught to be preserved. And so it becomes something more than just an abstract combination of beats that can be played with some other combination of notes. It becomes a relationship between people. And that is incredibly valuable. And he took his work being a, a teacher very, very seriously. And a part of that was his relationship to people. And I only wish I could have been a better student, I guess. Hey friend, thanks for listening. The Volume Knob is a weekly exploration of personal stories and the power of music. It's produced every week by Semlevant Audio, and it's edited, written, mixed, and hosted by me. My name's Keith Siri. You can follow the show on Twitter at Volume Knob 1, that's the number one, and on Instagram at Volume underscore Knob. My thanks to Zachary for his time and his vulnerability this week. Be sure to check out our website, www.volumeknob.net, for show notes which will include a bunch of interesting stuff, including links to our mailing list. My thanks to Kate as well for her 30-second review of The Essence of Rhythm. And as you'll probably be able to tell, I think that if Kate ever gets kidnapped in a dicey jewel deal in Jiper, it won't be because she's chasing her dreams of becoming a tabla prodigy. 
So, what'd you think? I thought it was boring. Just because it was the same thing for like 14 minutes. Like I get maybe two minutes, that's okay. But 14 minutes! You just listen to boom, 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 or something like that for 14 minutes! So it wasn't your cup of tea? No. See you again next week on The Volume Knob for more stories about the songs that saved your life.